You're listening to the On The Go with VAO news podcast covering the month of April 2017. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Each month, the Virtual Acquisition Office, or VAO, consolidates and summarizes the key takeaways from the most important acquisition-related policies, guidance, regulatory changes, and more. Thanks for tuning in today. Coming to you from the VAO, I'm Brittany Shapiro. Derek Kern is our host for this month to deliver the VAO team review of top developments that occurred in April 2017. So, take it away, Dara. I have some VAO teammates joining me today to uh, help with the presentation. We have online Julie LeBlanc, Marshall Hefner, and Nil Tajday. Thanks, Sarah. So let's get started and let's take a look at what's been happening with the administration and on Capitol Hill. More details have emerged on how the administration wants agencies to apply President Trump's January 30th executive order that requires two existing regulations to be removed for every one new rule implemented, otherwise known as the one-in, two-out rule. In the April 3rd guidance on the Reducing Regulation and Controlling Regulatory Costs order, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs clarified that incremental costs associated with regulatory actions must be fully offset by savings from deregulatory actions. In addition, the guidance specifies that agencies that want to issue any regulatory action on or before September 30th must beforehand identify which two regulatory actions will get the cut. The guidance also stipulates that the Office of Management and Budget Director will designate a cap for incremental costs of all regulations finalized during fiscal year 2018, which can only be exceeded with authorization. As for deregulatory cost savings, the memorandum explains they should be estimated in the same way as adding regulations, but in reverse. So just where are all these cost savings going to come from? Agencies are recommended to consider deregulatory actions such as informal, formal, and negotiated rulemaking, guidance and interpretive documents, actions related to international regulatory cooperation, and information collection requests that repeal or streamline record-keeping, reporting, or disclosure requirements. Any cost savings that agencies earn from deregulatory actions can also be banked to be used at a later date to satisfy future needed offsets. On April 12th, guidance from the Office of Management and Budget ended the federal hiring freeze and offered a plan for reforming the government and improving employment practices. With this guidance, OMB is replacing the government-wide freeze with a more strategic hiring plan. The 14-page memorandum outlines actions agencies must take to cut down on staff size, improve heavy measure employees' performance, and restructure their mission areas. Okay, so cut this, streamline that. Just what are we talking about here in terms of practical actions? Well, some of the encompassed actions include starting to develop funding levels that align with the President's fiscal year 2018 budget proposal and incorporate near-term workforce reductions and cost savings. Agencies also need to develop a plan to maximize employee performance by June 30th. 
They'll also be required to submit an agency reform plan to OMB in September as part of their fiscal 2019 budget submission, which will include a long-term workforce reduction. A high-level draft of that plan is due to OMB by June 30th. According to the guidance, OMB will work with agencies and stakeholders to develop reforms, which could include shared services or merging agencies, components, programs, or activities. These reforms will be aimed at creating a lean, accountable, more efficient government, focusing government efforts more on effectively and efficiently delivering federal programs that are a high priority for citizens, positioning the federal workforce to meet present and future needs instead of past requirements, and eliminating barriers that hinder frontline employees from delivering results. OMB Director Mick Mulvaney says that overall, the two-year effort should make the government dramatically more accountable, more efficient, and more effective. Naturally, there are a lot of differing opinions about OMB's reform guidance and action items. First off, procurement experts have noted that OMB is leaning heavily on existing procurement ideas, like using intra- and interagency shared services and centers of expertise and sharing IT infrastructure and external service providers. In addition, the guidance tries to control spending by better managing demand and consumption, consolidating IT infrastructure requirements, purchasing standard configurations for common requirements, participating in volume buying, and applying best commercial buying practices. It also considers government-wide acquisition contracts and federal supply schedules for common goods and services, seeks to avoid wasteful and redundant contracting actions, and attempts to free acquisition staff to expedite procurements for high-priority mission work. Solid approach is all, but nothing we haven't seen proposed in the past and adopted to greater and lesser degrees. Some are proponents of the guidance, seeing it as reinforcing that contract vehicles are an important tool in agencies' acquisition planning to handle increased demand with fewer resources, to which we say, yes, they are. But federal labor leaders are not so convinced. The president of the National Treasury Employees Union is concerned the guidance is, quote, little more than opening the door to increased contracting out of agency functions and services. And the president of the American Federation of Government Employees warns that reorganizing the government by relying on costly contractors is a terrible idea since the government already spends twice as much per year on service contractors than it does on its own workforce. Meanwhile, human capital experts are critical of the guidance. They say it's too focused on terminating poor-performing employees instead of replicating good work and best practices. And according to the president of the Senior Executives Association, poor-performing workers are just part of larger, more complex workforce management issues, and removing them would simply be like a painful Band-Aid. Instead, he recommends the government adopt an enterprise-wide workforce management system like SES's performance appraisal system. Along more pessimistic lines, the Partnership for Public Service says the guidance lacks needed details on recruiting and retaining high performers, and it urged the administration to explore the tried-and-true private sector approach of rewarding top-performing employees. Sally Jager, a senior advisor for the National Academy of Public Administration, also voted for OMB putting more of an emphasis on how to emulate work that's been done well. Now, admittedly, OMB is not considering its reform guidance as done and dusted. OMB Director Mick Mulvaney has issued an open call to public citizens to weigh in on how they think the government should be reformed. And remember, you are also citizens in addition to your public sector role and should absolutely share your ideas pertaining to this.
The agency is inviting feedback on anything that might be relevant to the reform efforts, including management reform ideas, such as actions to support better procurement outcomes, and any and all reorganizing ideas. For example, input on which agencies, boards, or commissions are due for an overhaul or are doing great work that should serve as an example to others, or those that are not pulling their weight and could be eliminated. The public, and all of you, can provide input through an online form on the White House website until June 12th. Good stuff, Julie. And on April 18th, President Trump signed an executive order directing agencies to buy American when procuring services and supplies. So yes, expert procurement folks that you are, you're now thinking to yourself, well, don't we already have laws that specify that already? And yes, yes, we do. This order is more about underscoring and reiterating these policies. Specifically, the order calls for agencies to scrupulously monitor, enforce, and comply with Buy American laws in order to maximize the use of goods, products, and materials produced in the U.S. in federal procurements. There are some actions that agencies will need to take in response to this executive order. 150 days from when the order was signed on April 18th, all agency heads are directed to assess their monitoring, enforcement, implementation of, and compliance with Buy American laws, assess the use of waivers by type and impact on domestic jobs and manufacturing, and develop and propose policies to ensure the federal financial assistance awards and procurements maximize the use of materials produced in the U.S. Within 60 days, agencies will receive guidance on how to make assessments and develop required policies from the Secretary of Commerce and the Director of OMB. And again, within 150 days, agency heads must also submit the results of their internal examinations. And the Secretary of Commerce and U.S. Trade Representative will assess the impact of all U.S. free trade agreements and World Trade Organization agreement on government procurement on the operation of Buy American laws. The executive order states that agency heads with authority over federal financial assistance awards or federal procurements will determine public interest waivers for Buy American laws. Another aspect of the order is that it aims to reform H-1B visas, which are sponsored by companies to expedite skilled workers' admission to the U.S. The order outlines a policy to rigorously enforce and administer the laws governing entry into the United States of workers from abroad, and requests reforms that ensure visas are going to the most skilled or highest paid petition beneficiaries. On April 27th, President Trump signed an executive order that aims to enhance accountability and whistleblower protection at the Department of Veterans Affairs. The order directs VA to create an office and a position of special assistant to the secretary to hold underperforming employees accountable, make it easier to remove employees VA has determined should no longer be part of the agency's staff, and on the flip side, help recruit, reward, and retain workers that do perform well and play a valuable role in supporting the agency's mission. VA will establish the new office within 45 days. And while going over the Office of Management and Budget's Workforce Memorandum, Director Mick Mulvaney confirmed that President Trump will request a 1.9% raise for federal civilian workers in fiscal year 2018. Mulvaney stated that the pay raise is the president's way of showing that really good federal workers will get rewarded accordingly. However, Mulvaney did not elaborate on how Trump will divide the raise between base pay and locality adjustments. 
Pay increases slightly less than the 2.1% increase proposed for federal employees in 2017 by President Barack Obama, which had been to match Congress's pay adjustment for uniformed military. President Trump's pay increase proposal will be formalized in May, along with his detailed fiscal 2018 budget. President Donald Trump's proposed defense budget may be in violation with the 2011 Budget Control Act, according to the Congressional Research Service. The fiscal year 2018 request of $603 billion exceeds the legislation's defense spending cap for that fiscal year by $54 billion. And the request for additional fiscal year 2017 appropriations would exceed this fiscal year's limit by $25 billion. Analysts are saying that the proposed spending for both fiscal years would lead to sequestration unless the BCA is changed. With that said, a recent Professional Services Council panel predicted that the Office of Management and Budget may only loosely enforce the spending caps. Even so, President Trump could order OMB to not even enforce sequestration spending caps since there's no criminal or civil penalties for violating the law. The Weather Research and Forecasting Innovation Act of 2017 has been signed into law by President Trump after unanimous passing vote in the House this month and Senate passage in March. This policy aims to improve the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's forecasting and alerts prior to extreme weather events. It requires that NOAA identify gaps in radar coverage and share more information with the National Weather Service and local media outlets. An acquisition-related provision in this new policy is that it reauthorizes a pilot program where NOAA establishes contracts with one or more private sector companies in order to evaluate their weather forecasting capabilities, which is being considered a paradigm shift in how NOAA makes future procurement decisions surrounding critical weather data and systems. Through this pilot, NOAA has already offered two contracts to procure commercial satellite weather data. According to the Science, Space, and Technology Committee Chairman, Lamar Smith, this policy would define NOAA's vision and support flexible procurement of new, affordable, and better value of data. With President Trump's great rebuilding of the military in mind, he has launched a Department of Commerce investigation to determine what effects steel imports have on national security and whether U.S. steel producers are up to the task of rebuilding efforts. When Trump signed the document to launch the investigation, the day after implementing the Buy American Executive Order, he said that the U.S. cannot afford to become dependent on foreign countries for steel. In light of plans to increase aircraft, naval, and tank fleets, officials are questioning whether the industry is equipped to boost its steel supply. Usually, contracts for major Department of Defense weapons programs require U.S.-made steel, but DOD's annual steel requirements comprise less than 0.3% of the U.S. industry's total output by weight and that's been decreasing over the last 10 years as composite technology advances. As of now, the clock's ticking on Commerce's report. It has 270 days. Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross has indicated that he may impose a tariff if the investigation finds an over-reliance on steel imports. A bill recently introduced by lawmakers aims to increase transparency for how taxpayer dollars are spent on federal contracts. But some industry and government groups are not thrilled about the idea, arguing that it would add unnecessary and time-consuming work for feds and vendors alike. The Contractor Accountability and Transparency Act of 2017 
would require agencies to publish entire contracts valued at $150,000 or more online in a machine-readable, searchable copy within 30 days of signing. Its intent, according to one of the introducing lawmakers, is to inform taxpayers on where their money is being spent and to better monitor for waste, fraud, and abuse. Under the law, contractors would be able to request redactions of sensitive information, trade secrets, or proprietary information. But information required to be made public under the Freedom of Information Act is fair game. However, contracting groups like the Professional Services Council and National Contract Management Association are saying that the bill would create an excessive workload and would not offer any benefit to the government. Though contracting group leaders admit that making contracts publicly available to citizens does have its value, the particularly pertinent information, like award winners and place of performance, is already available on usbasedspending.gov. For other contract details, there's always the Freedom of Information Act route. Other arguments are that federal contracts are quite complex. So if the goal is for the public to understand where a government contracted product or service is developed or made, or where its component parts, supply chain, integration come from, then posting a full contract is not the best way to disseminate that information. On the flip side, nonprofit transparency group Project on Government Oversight likes the bill, and it contends that 33 states already publish major contracts online. And the GAO has released this annual report on fragmentation, overlap, and duplication of federal programs and, as usual, has identified plenty of new areas in which agencies could tweak their actions and save some big bucks. Comptroller General Gene Dodaro started off the agency's 2017 reporting by recounting progress made thus far to the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. Congress and executive branch agencies have addressed 329, or just over 50 percent, of the 645 actions GAO proposed between 2011 and 2016, these resulting in about $136 billion in financial benefits. Since this is from just half of the offered recommendations, Badero says tens of billions more could be saved by fully addressing actions that remain open. Naturally, GAO also identified plenty of new steps that lawmakers and agencies can take to reach savings and become more efficient. There are 79 new actions GAO proposed across 29 new areas. For example, GAO advises the Department of Defense to better track military contingency construction projects funded with operation and maintenance dollars. Now, DOD sometimes relies on O&M money for projects of $1 million or less, since officials find it takes less time to get approval to use those funds. However, they don't track this. And this leads to the possibility that the department could double pay the same beneficiaries for the same projects. And there's also an opportunity for DOD and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to team up on ensuring access to weather satellite data. Both agencies use weather satellites for mission-critical functions, but have no formal process for combining those. Federal grant awards is another area in which federal agencies could take steps to cut down on potential duplication. Not all the agencies that contribute the billions of grant dollars the government allocates annually to state and local governments, educational institutions, and nonprofit organizations have formal processes in place that require them to check for, or how to identify, potentially duplicative grant findings. Beyond reducing fragmentation, overlap, and duplication, GAO also identified other ways agencies and lawmakers can take action 
to either reduce their cash flow or increase what's coming in. For example, GAO recommended that DOD commissaries could investigate and potentially adopt some of the best practices private sector grocery stores employ. The department is currently hoping to trim its costs by $2 billion over five years. The Navy is not presently required to consider using a warranty to require shipbuilders to fix defects in ships they have just delivered to the service. And the Navy is concerned the cost of including a warranty could be more expensive than simply fixing whatever issues are found post-delivery. But the GAO noted that there is no data to support this Navy assertion, and the Navy recently paid a shipbuilder nearly $5 million to fix things wrong with the brand new ships they just delivered under a fixed price incentive contract. GAO pointed out that this means the Navy essentially rewarded the shipbuilder for delivering a ship that needed additional work. And then there is also the government purchase card program. There's a lot of spending going on through these cards between almost $17 billion and nearly $20 billion annually for fiscal years 2010 through 2015. If agencies were to analyze what is being bought, they would likely be able to identify numerous opportunities to use cost-saving methods like buying in bulk, moving to category management or strategic sourcing, or simply requesting discounts for being the government and buying so much volume. Finally, speaking of category management, Tons of agencies and public safety personnel use land mobile radios. Think of how many walkie-talkies you see on the belts of folks in uniforms. Now, right now, that spending is fragmented, so opportunities to gain cost efficiencies are not being realized. From an operational standpoint, buying these radios from many different suppliers can also raise issues of logistics and compatibility. It's always a good idea to have personnel from the fire department, police, homeland security, and other folks be able to communicate and coordinate reliably and with ease. GAO therefore suggested this would be a fantastic area to move under category management. That is, buy in bulk, save money, improve interoperability and compatibility. Now, this report is always really interesting to look through, and it has many good ideas that could potentially translate to your own organizations. The Army is saying that to achieve cost savings and greater operational efficiency and data accuracy, it's going to have to ambitiously cut its business IT systems in half. The service plans to go from 800 business systems down to just 400, which is based on a Tolerate, Invest, Mitigate, Eliminate, or the TIME model created by the firm Gartner. The model divides systems by value and technical integrity to easily identify and eliminate those that are low in business value and low in technical capabilities but then migrate those that are valuable to the mission, but maybe lack a little bit of technical capability. So far, the Army has shown a successful track record of shutting down legacy logistics systems and migrating those functions into the logistics modernization program, as well as integrating accounting systems into the enterprise resource planning system for finance. The largest nest of DOD legacy systems, however, can be found running the Army's personnel systems. To address cost efficiency in this area, Army leadership has approved the Integrated Personnel and Pay System Army, or IPSA, which should consolidate 43 separate systems when deployed next year. IPSA will be actually pretty transformational, uh, not just on the back end, but for the users as well. Not only will the system shut down dozens of outdated systems, but it will also greatly simplify the Army's business processes. For example, the former soldier completes when they want to take leave, typically goes through 12 to 13 steps before it even gets to the right human resources people. 
An additional seven to eight steps are required upon that soldier's return, with the risk of costly transactional errors occurring at any of those steps. IPSA will streamline that process to just two or three steps. So, hurrah for easier PTO. The General Services Administration is also doing its part to enhance government human resources functions with its new HR and Equal Employment Opportunity Multiple Awards Schedule 738X that aims to reduce contract redundancy, increase cost savings, and streamline the acquisition process. Some changes to the schedule include renaming it to the Human Capital Management and Administrative Support Services Schedule 738X, that sonic jetcraft-sounding numeric portion will remain the same, and it will also add 10 new special item numbers that define HR service subcategories. With these changes, customer agencies will more easily find human capital services solutions and identify HR services providers. And the vendor pool will be a full spectrum of human capital professional services providers, 60% of which are small businesses. The enhanced Schedule 738X also complements the new Human Capital and Training Solutions, or HCAT's acquisition vehicle, since it aligns with the more standard HR requirements for uncustomized commercial services. GSA hopes that Schedule 738X could be a contender for a best-in-class designation. All right, well, once again this month, we have a brief set of policy updates to share with you. On April 3rd, the Department of Energy provided an update to its Acquisition Guide, Chapter 42.15, Contractor Performance Information. DOE has redesignated the chapter as 42.1502 and updated it to delete duplicative and outdated guidance and to make administrative and formatting changes. On April 27th, DOD updated its instructions on accounting for department equipment and other property to prevent loss, damage, theft, or waste and to ensure appropriate financial reporting. Instruction 5000.64 requires components to keep records of government property of any value, including property furnished to contractors or loaned to other entities like federal agencies, state and local governments, and foreign governments. Contracting personnel must maintain documentation supporting the decision to provide the government furnished property, or GFP, in the official contract file. Disposition of the property must be similarly documented, and paperwork supporting the completed actions must be given to the responsible, accountable property officer to make sure the record is updated in the property management system. The instruction is effective immediately. The Office of Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy has updated its strategic plan for defense-wide procurement capabilities. Version 2.2 relates accomplishments from fiscal year 2016, reaffirms department goals for fiscal years 2017 and 18 and adds graphics that illustrate improvements made to DOD's enterprise services and systems. This is a document you'll want to reference if you deal with planning for your organization's business system because components are required to align their fiscal 2018 portfolio plans for those systems with the goals set forth in this strategic plan. And DOD has released new guidance on integrating environmental quality systems into DOD activities and programs that deal with aggregating, curating, and applying environmental data. The new instruction prescribes how components should integrate such systems in accordance with department policy and applicable national and international standards. It also establishes the DOD Environmental Laboratory Accreditation Program, 
for the collection of definitive data used in support of the Defense Environmental Restoration Program and Advanced Geophysical Classification Accreditation Program, which is for organizations using the Advanced Geophysical Classification Process at munitions response sites. Why do we care about this? Well, it's pertinent to all department activities and programs that involve environmental data. This encompasses government-owned but contractor-operated facilities and former defense sites. So this may be information you need to convey to your vendors. Exempt from the policy are contractor-owned facilities not controlled by DOD and radiological data from the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program. This instruction is effective immediately. Well, it turns out industry's concerns over the General Services Administration's transactional data reporting pilot did not keep industry from participating. In the pilot, part of a larger category management effort, industry participants were required to submit sales information about their products and services to GSA, which GSA would use to support agency customers buying products and services through the multiple award schedules. In return, GSA gives us industry partners some slack on requirements like the price reduction clause and commercial sales disclosures. Some of the industry's issues with the transactional data reporting pilot include demanding reporting requirements and not knowing what exactly GSA would do with sensitive procurement information. Definitely a concern. However, industry partners seeking or renewing the schedule decided to participate in the pilot at an attendance much higher than anticipated, proving that the agency did not need to mandate their participation. In fact, GSA garnered so much participation that it is moving to remove the requirement altogether, making the pilot voluntary. The agency will continue to address concerns and review the pilot, likely by the end of the year. For the General Services Administration, swapping federal real estate may not be the best way to solve its real property issues. GSA's latest federal real estate swap solicitation for the Francis Perkins Building Exchange, this project has been canceled. The swap would have resulted in the new Department of Labor headquarters. GSA realized that exchanging the building for another property would not actually help solve its real property issues or maximize its return. The cancellation resulted from offerors' questions at an information session and throughout the first phase of the procurement process and coupled with experience from other GSA projects around the country. Additionally, the building's needs for its expensive infrastructure included modern heating, electrical, plumbing, and elevator systems similar to the mold issues faced by the Florida federal courthouse situation. GSA will continue to gather more information along with Department of Labor to figure out a solution for the new headquarters and a long-term strategy for the Francis Perkins building. GSA is moving forward on the $50 billion unrestricted portion of its Alliant II government-wide acquisition contract for IT services. Specifically, Alliant 2 Unrestricted is going into the source selection phase. GSA's acquisition team will be contacting offerers at this point if they need to verify or clarify any information provided in their proposals, likely regarding information on their small business subcontracting plans and GSA Financial Form 527. Form 527 determines bidder's eligibility for a government contract, including assets, liabilities, and government indebtedness. It is likely that GSA will award the unrestricted and small business portions of Alliant 2 in the fall, but make sure to keep an eye on FedBizOps for any contract updates. The Federal Election Commission is projecting to save $1.2 million annually by moving to the cloud. With the launch of its new cloud.gov hosted website, 
For reference, that is 1.5% of FEC's entire annual operating budget. The savings will derive from retiring internal systems after content is migrated. Also, since cloud.gov is open source, FEC will not pay as much in licensing fees and overhead costs that would have gone toward a hosting facility. Another cloud-related saving is that FEC will no longer need to buy extra servers to accommodate periods of traffic spikes when there is a rise in interest of campaign finance transactions. The cloud.gov platform has the capability of ramping up the computer power in order to better serve those high demand periods, but it can also power down during low demand time. So it's a consumption-based model where FEC only has to pay for what it uses. FEC leadership credits the General Services Administration's 18F team for helping spark modernization with the move towards the cloud and getting them in a mindset when it comes to IT and business development to adopt this new move. FEC's new website will be prepped for launch on April 30th, so hopefully that is up and running for them. Also underway is the Marine Corps' $1.2 billion program for amphibious combat vehicles that will replace the retiring assault amphibious vehicles that BAA Systems and SAIC are still competing for. But BAE has completed decisive independent at-sea prototype testing in April. BAE Systems effectively demonstrated that its prototype ship can successfully launch and be recovered, plus be operated in 6 to 8 foot waves and 10 to 15 knot wind. Most importantly to the Marines, BAE's prototype presented a capability that it wants for its new amphibious combat vehicle. It's able to reverse itself back onto the boat using a ramp. The vehicle has an 8x8 wheel design for traction and plenty of torque to drive itself back into the boat as well as make the shift from soft beaches to soil. Other ship features include room for 13 embarked Marines and a three-person crew, a quiet 690 horsepower engine, suspended seat structure, and a V-shaped hull to protect from underbody blasts. BAE and SAIC must both deliver 16 vehicles by June 15th but whichever company is awarded the contract must deliver 200 additional vehicles by 2020. A final request for proposal will go out in December and a decision will be made in January 2018. The Coast Guard released a request for information on another aging fleet, its heavy polar icebreaker system. In its RFI, the Coast Guard announced the draft specifications that it would like its new polar icebreaker system to have, including its hull structure, propulsion and electrical parts, command and surveillance systems, weaponry, outfitting, and auxiliary systems. This RFI is part of the Navy and Coast Guard's ongoing market research on the technology risks, sustainability, producibility, and affordability related to developing a new icebreaker. Once the market research is finished, the service will follow up with a request for proposals in fiscal year 2018 for detailed design and construction of a heavy polar icebreaker with plans to start production in 2020. Industry has until 11 a.m. on June 16th to ask questions or submit feedback on the RFI regarding the new icebreaker system. Well, it seems that a tweet from President Trump has stirred the pot on DOD's F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program. Boeing echoed Trump's criticism of the cost of Lockheed Martin's program in a white paper, alleging that more F-A-18 aircraft and fewer F-35s would save the government $30 billion. It says the savings would come from $8 billion in aircraft purchases 
and $1.4 billion annually in operations and maintenance costs over 20 years. The paper adds that DOD's current F-35 plan actually leaves significant capability gaps and would cause the Navy to have a significant inventory shortfall. Boeing suggests that advanced Super Hornet FA-18XT squadrons have stronger capabilities against emerging threats and would deal with the inventory issue more cost-effectively. A Lockheed Martin rep responded to the scrutiny by stressing the F-35's overall price reduction including a per-plane reduction of the A model to below $100 million apiece. From what's in DOD's pipeline, it's no surprise that its contract obligations rose 7% to $296 million for 2015 to 2016, according to a Center for Strategic International Studies report. This is the first increase in contract obligations for the Defense Department since 2008. More good news for DOD is that contract costs have been dropping, thanks to its Better Buying Power initiative and a significant decrease in contract breaches. However, the report also revealed a not-so-great sign for industry. There won't be as many new programs in the works over the next 10 years, it says. It also predicts the defense industry will shift further away from research and development. And contractors and government CIOs have underestimated a widespread federal problem of uncatalogued and unmanaged computer devices, also called shadow IT, and these items are connected to federal networks. Continuous diagnostics and monitoring tools have uncovered an average of 44% more of these unauthorized devices on agencies' networks than expected. Some agencies saw several hundred percent more devices on their network. As a result, agencies are having to modify hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts because the numbers were much higher than contractors anticipated when they made their bids, which has agencies pushing to find additional funding. The shadow IT probably went undetected because it was in areas that go unchecked by agency CIOs, or the shadow IT exists in areas program offices don't really interact with. The findings don't necessarily indicate poor cybersecurity, but the issue in and of itself poses some cybersecurity risk. After rescoping efforts, agencies are going to start implementing lessons learned before continuing to the next round of contracts in order to gauge a more appropriate scope. Continuous diagnostic and monitoring capabilities to remove unauthorized devices from a network are not scheduled for implementation until 2018. Now, why exactly are small firms not wanting to sell to the government? Well, Steve Kelman interviewed people from non-government technology world and found that there are a number of reasons. For one, the cost of federal risk authorization and management program, also known as FedRAMP, well, that certification is too high and often a deal breaker for a smaller company unless that company can ensure that it has a big enough federal market to make the price of FedRAMP certification worthwhile. Then there are the service-oriented companies that are concerned they'll sacrifice their identity when working as subcontractors. These companies often act as a staffing firm for large contractors, just sending people over to work and then they finally can't manage or oversee these employees. Big surprise, right? As a result, they feel that their company cannot really do anything special that way. And maybe the most obvious reason that small companies provided was that they don't want to be involved in the confining language and bureaucracy that they must endure to work in the federal space. Plus, the learning curve is much steeper in the government than in other sectors. Cohen did expect that small businesses would offer reasons such as special affirmative action plans, 
higher than statutory minimum wages, and having to provide cost data to the government. However, surprisingly, those reasons were not at the top of their list. DOD's Joint Improvised Threat Defeat Organization, or JIDO, has been reworking contracts over the past five years in order to get capabilities to soldiers more quickly. Namely, JIDO changed its contracts to create a better service-level partnership with industry and increase agility, and changed its government and contractor workforces by training and bringing in new people. The organization also credits the National Institute for Standards and Technologies Cybersecurity Framework and DOD shifting to a risk management framework for helping to establish secure Agile at JIDO. However, policy and adapting processes for Agile has made it difficult to automate software development and IT operations. Any program executive officer level can emulate JIDO's work, according to the organization, but agencies must first address certain challenges to scale it up to a, an enterprise level similar to what DOD is using. So to do that, personnel should ask themselves, is your human capital ready to support such a move? Do they understand the technologies that will be used in the effort? Do they understand the methodologies that are going to be used? And importantly for us, are you writing your contracts to support getting you to those stages? It'll soon be less frustrating for Freedom of Information Act requesters and the 119 agencies subject to that law. The Justice Department's Office of Information Policy and General Services Administration's ATF are creating a one-stop portal to align with the 2016 FOIA Improvement Act. Anyone can make Freedom of Information Act requests for an agency to publicly release certain federal documents, and the 2016 Improvement Act requires that agencies publicly release those documents online that have been requested at least three times. The new portal consolidates all of the agency's FOIA systems into one interoperable website. Through this new portal, the public can easily find the right agency to whom they would submit a Freedom of Information Act request and also conveniently access documents that already have been released. The Office of Information Policy aims for the portal to be operational sometime this calendar year. Now, let's take a turn and see what's new in the world of courtroom drama. All right, so protests. They're no one's favorite, and unfortunately, we do know they keep growing in number. Aside from running a meticulous solicitation and award process, can anything be done to stem the rising tide? This is a question some personnel at the General Services Administration's Assisted Acquisition Services Office are starting to delve into. Now, Mark Othello, Director of the Client Support Center at the Mid-Atlantic AAS, is careful to note that the protest process is absolutely valuable and an important avenue for addressing legitimate mistakes or inconsistencies in the way a contract was awarded. When it's, I want to keep it another six months because I'm the incumbent and I lost, I think, that creates a lot of work and expense on the government's part, he explains. So it's the frivolous or arbitrary bid protest that would be the legitimate target to try to reduce. But who's going to decide what counts as frivolous or arbitrary? Would you have to have a post-protest legal process to attempt to determine whether an unsuccessful protester was being frivolous or malicious? That sounds even harder than deciding the merits of the case in the first place. We reached out to the VAO community for your ideas on what reforming the system might look like. One popular suggestion was collecting a fee at protest filing, refunded if the filer prevailed. The fee would need to be large enough to discourage unfounded complaints, but not so large that small businesses would be unable to have their voices heard. Building on this idea, 
Another suggestion to avoid having a filing fee place an undue burden on small businesses would be to give each business a certain number of free protests and then charge the filing fee. This would allow firms attempting to bring a legitimate case to do so without difficulty, but also make repeat protesters think twice before filing. One thing is sure, there are no easy answers, but we do expect to learn more this year about the extent to which protests are being used for, let's call it strategic purposes, with the independent inquiry DOD must conduct per requirements of the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act. A department-appointed panel will be looking at the following. Just how much program managers structure their acquisitions to avoid bid protests, rather than selecting the optimal structure to support their program goal, and how it is affecting their decisions to exercise options, encourage teaming, or make multiple award contracts, what impact protests are having on deciding whether to use lowest price, technically acceptable criteria, statistics on how much new contracts are being protested versus task orders, and how often incumbents are filing, and whether the pre- and post-award briefings and their quality influence contractors' decisions to proceed with filing a protest. Yes, this is for DOD-specific contracts, but some broader implications should be able to be drawn from the findings for the federal acquisition community at large. This is certainly a discussion that will be continued. Lawmakers and the President successfully rolled back former President Barack Obama's Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces Executive Order, much to the light of industry groups who had complained the order was tantamount to blacklisting and could penalize companies without due process. As it turns out, though, there may indeed be a need out there the order would have helped address. According to the Department of Labor, Wage, and Hour Division, during a year-and-a-half period between January 2015 and July 2016, federal agencies modified or awarded over $18 billion to 68 contractors with proven wage violations against 11,000 employees. Additionally, federal contractors owe over $50 million to nearly 32,000 of their workers for fiscal year 2016 wage violations alone. Labor also identified more than 32,000 violations of the Service Contract Act, over 12,000 violations of the Davis-Bacon Act, and over 4,000 violations of the Contract Work Hours and Safety Standards Act. So let's take a look at a couple of protest decisions. The Government Accountability Office sided with a protester who complained that, in the that the Internal Revenue Service was being too picky about product specifications when it issued a request for quotations for mail inserter and folder machines. Bitter Pitney Bowes challenged technical specs in the statement of work as unduly restrictive of competition. In particular, the IRS asked for high-capacity sheet feeders that can be loaded during operation. Pitney Bowes said its machines have two high-capacity sheet feeders and could achieve the same continuous operation as IRS specified. IRS failed to convince GAO there was a reasonable justification for why such a requirement would be necessary. The IRS also wanted the machines to be able to accommodate all types of envelopes in a single envelope feeder. Pitney Bowes pointed out that its standard envelope feeder accommodates the most common types of envelope sites, sizes, and if an especially unusual size was necessary, the needed mechanism could be put in place in less than 30 seconds. GAO again found that IRS could not reasonably justify this requirement 
and it sustained Pitney Bowes Challenge. So what's your takeaway here? Try to keep your requirements as supportive of competition as possible while still meeting your needs. If you do need to make any special specifications, ensure you have a reasonable justification for them and make sure you document them accordingly. GIO also sustained a challenge to a Federal Transit Administration evaluation of quotations. FTA had offered a request for quotations for IT services to current contract holders on GSA's IT Schedule 70. The IRFQ advised offers that the procurement would be conducted using the best value trade-off evaluation method with award to the vendor whose quotation was most advantageous to the government. It awarded the contract to Optimal Solutions and Technologies, which had a higher-rated, higher-priced quotation. Protester Harmonia Holdings Group argued that FTA did not conduct a price-slash-technical best-value trade-off, but FTA argued that a trade-off wasn't necessary because it conducted the procurement under Federal Acquisition Regulation 8.4 instead of the negotiated procurement procedures in FAR 15. However, GAO pointed out that once FTA chose to apply the trade-off approach, it was obligated to document the rationale for the trade-offs made as specified by FAR 8.4. That regulation would apply in this case independent of FAR 15. GAO noted the record does not include any price-slash-technical trade-off analysis comparing optimal solutions quotation to Harmonious. The agency claimed its findings regarding the realism of Harmonious proposed price justified its failure to conduct a trade-off, but GAO noted that the record merely shows concerns with Harmonious pricing for a contract line item number, not that FTA rejected the quotation on that basis. So, protests sustained. Now then, let's move on to our review of the top changes to acquisition regulations. The Federal Maritime Commission issued a final rule that updated and reduced the regulatory burden of its service contracts and non-vessel operating common carrier service arrangements. This rule becomes effective May 5th. The Commission also made some amendments and clarifications from the proposed rule it issued on April 22nd. The Legal Services Corporation issued a notice indicating its intent to revise its grant assurances for grant year 2018 basic field grants. Grant assurances will now be called grant terms and conditions and will become part of the request for proposals to better notify applicants about grants' legal, regulatory, and contractual requirements. The LSC will accept comments through May 8th. And the Small Business Administration on April 18th issued a proposed rule to incorporate OMB's North American Industry Classification System 2017 revision into its Table of Small Business Size Standards. The NAICS 2017 revisions created 21 new industries by reclassifying, combining, or splitting 29 existing industries established by NAICS in 2012. There are numerous changes on the table here, so have a look if this relates to your position's responsibilities. Comments may be submitted until June 19th. SBA is planning to adopt the updated table of size standards on the 1st of October. And that is it for our look back at April. Thanks to all our subscribers for tuning in. You can read more about any of the covered headlines on our news page located on our website at www.gotovao.com to all our iTunes subscribers. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you have any questions on how to gain access to the Virtual Acquisition Office, please email us at vaocustomercare at gotovao.com.
Join us again next time for a monthly recap of key acquisition developments. Thank you again for joining us today. Goodbye.